Today we'll look at two passages, Revelation 19 and then Micah chapter 4, part 2 of a small series on glorifying Christ. That is our theme for this year, glorifying Christ. And through these three messages, I want us to have a better idea what that looks like, what that involves, uh, what it means. Last week, we looked at several passages in Revelation at what it will look like in human history when God removes all restraints from mankind and he lets humanity fully go their own way of sin, transgression, and depravity. And they will be, as we saw, 110% committed, given to self-gratification. There's going to be materialism, immorality. It will be, that sort of thing will be viewed as right. Uh, they will hate those who want to do righteousness in God's eyes. Those who believe in Christ, they will hate them so much that they will slaughter them. Through those first three and a half years, there will be two individuals who will uh, successfully preach the gospel. And no matter what uh, apostate religion does to try to limit their ministry, they will not be able uh, will not be able to kill those two until the Antichrist rises, then he will kill them. But they will come back to life. And so while they can't kill those two prophets, they will slaughter believers wholesale. Um, s- children will betray their parents. Parents will betray their children. Uh, it will be a horrific time. But there will come a time You have your Bibles there, Revelation 19. Look with me at verse 2. The great multitude in heaven says this, True and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. What will that time be like when Christ returns and he rules? When every aspect of light and all creation, as the subtitle says there today, all creation will glorify Christ in human history with the the clock of time continuing to run. I'm not looking, we're not looking ahead here in Scripture to, you know, eternity future. This will happen while the clock is running now, when human history is still ongoing. Next Sunday, we'll look at how should we, Christ's church, how should we glorify Christ until this time? First, let's look, number one, on your handout there, we see in verses 9, uh, 10, chapter 19, verse 10 to chapter 20, verse 6, how Christ would be glorified when he returns and judges and judges the unholy trinity. I introduced you to this unholy trinity last week from Scripture. It's composed of Satan, the devil, of the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Satan will energize these two individuals, and they will do tremendous miracles that will deceive the nations. Uh, the false prophet will create an, an image of the, the Antichrist, the beast, as he's called in Revelation. It will come to life. All will bow down and worship him. Uh, all unbelievers will have uh, the, the Antichrist stamp 
mark uh, put on their forehead or the right hand. But what will Jesus do? What will Jesus do? Number one, we just read in verses 11 to 16 how Jesus will. Jesus will descend from heaven to judge the world. Now this might be a truth that, yeah, we all believers know this. Why am I spending time on this? Well, let me give you four reasons why, real quick. Matthew chapter 21, or Luke chapter 21, verse 8. Jesus will descend from heaven. The true Christ will descend from heaven in contrast to those who say that they will be the Messiah. It says there in Luke 21, 8, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. They are false messiahs. The true Messiah will return. A second reason why this is important, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. This is in contrast to those who think that they have eternal life, but right now, they think they're going to heaven, even though they live sinful and immoral lives. Paul says in that passage, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves. And we might say, well, that's, I'm safe, I haven't done any of those. And then he says, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. A third reason, Jude 14 and 15 This is in contrast to those who live blasphemous, ungodly lives, and they blaspheme the name of Christ. They shake their fist at Jesus right now. And by how they live and what they say, they say, see, there is no God, and he is not doing anything. And in Jude 14, 15, it says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Christ. A fourth reason why we may need to focus on the fact that he will come again is Second Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Second Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says there that scoffers, and I quote, in the last days... They will say, Jesus will not return. Where's the promise of his coming? Everything's continuing on as it always has. See, he's not coming. But when Jesus returns, he he descends from heaven to judge the world. Number two, we'll see from verses 17 to 21, Jesus will judge the Antichrist and the false prophet. He will judge the Antichrist and the false prophet. Let's read these. This, these, this passage again, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast, this is the Antichrist, The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his armies. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence 
by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat in the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Before I get into this, um, every time I read that passage, all the birds were filled with, his, with their flesh. I always think of Matthew 6, 26. Uh, what does the Lord do for birds? He provides for their, their needs. <laughs> Just kind of a, yep, the Lord will definitely provide for birds' needs then. When Jesus returns, comes down from the clouds, as we read there in verses 11 to 16, what will he be up against? Who will he be up against? Just kind of a thumbnail review of last week. He'll be up against the Antichrist and the false prophet with all the miraculous power. Jesus is going to be up against the financial power of Babylon, commercial Babylon, that uh, leverages all the finances of this world. Jesus is going to be against the armaments of every army, of every nation. Jesus is going to be against all humanity that has the the Antichrist brand on them, their foreheads and their hands, serving in millions and millions and millions. Jesus is going to be against Satan who empowers these two individuals. And yet, what will Jesus do all by himself? What will he do when he returns? We read there in verse 20 that he will take the Antichrist, the false prophet, he'll capture them, he'll throw them alive into the lake of fire. That Matthew 25, verse 41 says, they will be tormented forever and ever for eternity where they'll be weeping, do you remember this? Wailing and what with their teeth? Gnashing of teeth. It's no contest. What about the nations and their armies? Well, we read that in verse 21. They will be slaughtered by Christ. Number three, what else will Jesus do? This is in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Jesus will bind and imprison Satan. He will bind and imprison Satan. Now, some of you might want to say, well, pastor, actually in verse 1, it says an angel's going to do that. Who unleashes these judgments? Who's the one causing this to happen? This goes back to chapter 4 and 5 that we looked at briefly last week. Who's the only one who, who is worthy to unleash these judgments? It's Christ and Christ alone. He's ultimately the one who's doing this. So who is Satan that he will do this to? Satan is the great deceiver. He's the prince of the power of what? The air. He's the god of this world. He's the spirit, Ephesians 2, who controls unbelievers. He's a prowling, 1 Peter 5, a prowling and devouring lion. But yet who is Jesus? Let's flip back a page if you have to, to chapter 19. Who is this Jesus? Verse 11. I saw, Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on it was called faithful and true. 
he is going to war against the father of lies, the devil. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth was a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That should bring back memories of Psalm 2. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is an expression from several passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah particularly. And he has a robe and on his thigh a name written. And what is that name? Let's say it, read it together. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus. And he will come, he will deal with the Antichrist, the false prophet, all the nation's armies, and he will, take G- he will take Satan, chain him, and throw him into a bottomless pit. The idea is it is inescapable, even for such a powerful being as Satan. Just a quick little rabbit trail. Who is the only one that can bind Satan? Only Christ. So when you see and hear that foolishness of people on the radio and TV and the internet, Satan, I bind you. That is wrong. We are never told to do that sort of thing in Scripture. We have a defensive response. Put on the armor of God. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Only Jesus is the one who will do that. How long will Satan be there? It says in verse 2, bind him for a thousand years. And verse 3, he cast him into the bottomless pit, inescapable, shut him up, set a seal on him, so that, look at this, he will deceive the nations no more till the thousand years are finished. He will not be around, no more, prowling about. No Satan, no demons, they'll all be incarcerated in jail. Think about that. No demonic, no satanic influence on the earth at all. Completely absent. Amen. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Number four. What else will Jesus do when he returns? Number four. He will resurrect. He will resurrect martyred tribulation saints. Resurrect martyred tribulation saints. Verses 4 and 5. I saw thrones and they sat in them and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image or had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We looked briefly last week at how these believers during the tribulation who respond to the gospel that they hear either from those two prophets or the 144,000, how they will be slaughtered. They will be beheaded. It will be public. So that it will be a warning to all by the Antichrist. Don't believe in Christ. This is what will happen to you. The Antichrist, the false prophet, apostate and commercial Babylon, they think that They gain the victory over these believers by killing them. 
They think that they gained the victory. But what happens when Jesus returns? Jesus kills and throws in the lake of fire the enemies, and he brings back to life those who supposedly were killed and removed forever. And they rule with Christ for a thousand years, it's said here twice, in verse 4 and 6. Now at this point, we know that Jesus will rule in his kingdom. Again, some smart aleck might say, it doesn't say anything here about a kingdom. But what does it say twice at the end of verse 4? And verse 6, they reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the end of verse 6, they shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, what's the implication? If you reign, what does that mean? There's a kingdom. You're ruling, and you're the ruler. John doesn't say anything, though, here, about what life will be like during Christ's kingdom reign on earth in human history. As I said, while time's clock is still running. Except for one thing. John only tells us one, well, he tells us a couple things, actually. He tells us that Satan won't be there. The resurrected tribulation saints are there. But particularly, John tells us something that we don't find anywhere else in Scripture, and that is how long Christ's mediatorial kingdom will reign. How long will he reign for? A thousand years. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of that, uh, at, at 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ will reign and then he will give that reign over to the Lord and so he shall reign forever. The mediatorial kingdom, Christ as the mediator and the ruler, that will merge then into the eternal kingdom. But I want us to focus, what will life be like when all creation will glorify the Lord? We just saw, and I'll talk about this more uh, at the end. The first thing, Jesus will be glorified by judging his enemies. That's the thing I want us to see here from Revelation 19 and 20. He will be glorified by judging his enemies. But number two, let's go to Micah chapter four. Christ will be glorified during his reign in the millennial kingdom. We can say it's a thousand years because it says it right there in scripture. Micah, chapter 4. Give me a little background and context for the book of Micah because it might not be a book that you're all that familiar with. Micah here, he, he declares God's case against his people Israel because they were in great sin. It's written around the year 700 B.C. or so. They deserve God's punishment, but it also tells about the Lord's gracious salvation through the Messiah. And so Micah kind of goes back and forth, as several of these prophets do, between God's judgment and God's deliverance for Israel. They need to repent because they're in sin, and they need to trust because God will rule and reign. Number two, Christ will be glorified during his reign, R-E-I-G-N, in the millennial kingdom. Millennial means a thousand years. Micah chapter 4. Christ will be glorified by everyone on the face of the earth in human history. Verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. 
and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We see here, number one, Jerusalem will be the capital. It will be the capital of Christ's kingdom. Several expressions here. Verse 1, it's the mountain of the Lord's house. It is the mountain of the Lord. In verse 2, it is the house of the God of Jacob and Zion and Jerusalem. This will be the capital of Christ's thousand-year reign on earth. Number two, a second thing let's see in how all creation will glorify the Lord. Number two, the physical earth. The physical earth will glorify Christ. Originally, my secondary title had the world. All the world will glorify Christ. That's not all of it. It's all creation will glorify Christ. Look at the middle part of verse 1. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Here it is. And shall be exalted above the hills. Now, if you know your geography, what's the highest point on the earth right now? It's not Ohio. It's the Himalayan mountain. Or Mount Everest. There we go. Mount Everest, okay? That's the highest point. So the theological smart Alex of our day will say, see, you can't take this literally. That's not what it's referring to. Because Jerusalem, yeah, it's up high. And yeah, they talked about let's go up to Jerusalem because of the geographic differences from the lower plains. But it's not taller than Mount Everest. You literalists, you need to learn how to handle your Bible rightly. Well, what does the rest of Scripture say will happen before this time? Before we get to that, I want to give one example. Has the Lord ever, has he ever, in a short amount of time, caused massive physical, geological changes to occur, resulting in upheavals of mountains and the removal of dirt and sediment. Has the Lord ever done that in just a short, brief amount of time? And we should say, yeah, Genesis 6 to 9, and whose flood? As it's called, Noah's flood. God caused that to occur in just a very short amount of time. How long will that tribulation period last? Seven years. And what will the Lord do? Some passages to write down from Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 13. Revelation verse, chapter 6, verse 13. This is in the first series of the Lord's judgment, those sealed judgments. He will cause earthquakes, meteors to fall, mountains will be leveled, islands will be removed. And then chapter 16, verse 20, the end result, the last series of judgments, the bold judgments. In Revelation 16, 20, it says this. Now listen. Every island fled away 
and the mountains were not found. And so we read then in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, this declaration, Zechariah 14, verses 9 and 10. The Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day it shall be. The Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the town of Hananiel to the king's wine presses. Very specific there. Oh, but we need to take that figuratively. We shouldn't take that literally. Poor Zechariah. He, you know, foolishly wrote this stuff down. He didn't really mean what he wrote. Or he didn't have any clue that what he really wrote was lying. No! God moved Zechariah to write this. He knew exactly what he was going to write. But my point here, what do we read in Micah chapter 4 verse 1? The mountain of the Lord's house shall be exalted above the hills, and all the mountains shall be leveled, and it's all the world is going to look like Iowa. Flats, cornfields, and beautiful. I knew it was going to be that way. Number three, a third aspect of Christ's reign in the millennial kingdom. Everyone will love, learn from, and live for. Christ. Everyone will love, learn from, and live for Christ. Verse 2. Everyone will love, learn from, and live for Christ. Verse 2. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Everyone at the beginning of the kingdom is going to be a believer. No one will be able to enter the kingdom who is not a believer. Pastor, can you give us some scripture to back that up? Sure can. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus that one night? Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And then he said in verse 5, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Imagine a world where everyone is a believer. Where everyone loves the Lord. And everyone wants to learn from the Lord. And everyone wants to obey the Lord and live for Him. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? We're just so used to the world as it is. The spontaneous desire of Gentiles' hearts will be to go where Christ the King is and learn from him. Let's go. Come, let's go. And not just individuals. Let's make a trip. Let's do this together. Let's go to Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. We just came off Christmas time. We're all, we're all playing Handel's Messiah, right? didn't get that resounding amen that I was hoping for. But Isaiah 60, verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light. That's one of uh, the Messiah's great uh, points there. The Gentiles shall come to your light. That's exactly what Micah is saying here. You could also write down Zechariah 8, verses 21 to 23. 
Zechariah 8, 21 to 23. Listen. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the slave of a Jewish man and say, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. As Christians, we love this book, don't we? We hear God's word. We go to it for comfort, for instruction. We read it because we love the Lord and we want to learn from him. Folks, guess what's going to happen when the word incarnate is on earth himself. There is going to be new revelation continually given by him. Nothing he doesn't say will be wrong. Everything he says will be right and true and must be heeded. And believers love the Lord and they're going to want to hear him. And so they'll make pilgrimages regularly to go hear from Christ himself. As king, he's going to decree laws to obey. And the citizens of the kingdom, they're not going to say, oh, no, more laws. They're going to say, yes, how can we serve you, Lord? How can we obey you? That's how a regenerate heart responds to God's word. I want to, you want to serve the Lord. You want to obey him. We're not told how, verse 2, how the law is going to go out of Zion, how it's going to go forth. We're not told the specifics of that. But I want you to think a minute. Worldwide communication today pretty easy to do, isn't it? Growing up, my dad was, and still is, an amateur radio operator. This does not mean he really doesn't know how to run an AM-FM radio. That's not what that refers to. He's been involved for over 50 years in a thing called ham radio, and doesn't have anything to do with pigs. Okay? On his ham radio, I remember in the 70s, growing up, my bedroom was right above my dad's uh, radio shack. That's what ham radio operators call it. And it's complete disarray. There's wires everywhere. I mean, it's just a, a mess. This is back when you had radios, uh, had tubes, glass things. Uh, he had teletype. And I remember the teletype going out. And he'd be on the net, as it was called, relaying messages for uh, service members. Uh, that was a, a primary responsibility he had, relaying members from service, uh, people in the armed forces, from themselves to, to, to their folks or something like that in a, quickly, uh, in, a, in a quick way. And he had generators. He could do this throughout at any time without electricity. Um, I remember that. I remember thinking, this is amazing. Dad can talk to anyone in the world. Now, we could do that with a telephone back then. They had a cord too, and he had to turn a dial. Yes, that's how old I am. I remember going around the dial. But now, what do we do? You know, with this thing, I can text Daniel Kumar. We could FaceTime Daniel Kumar. We could have a live discussion with him. And this is why the curse of sin is on the world now. Imagine what the things will be like when they're, that's 
pull back when Christ is ruling and his law goes forth. I can't imagine what it will be like. Number four, verse three, Christ will rule the world. He will rule the world. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. He will rule the world from Jerusalem. He'll perfectly handle all national problems. Perfectly handle them. Number five, verses three to eight. Christ will bring worldwide peace and prosperity. He will bring worldwide peace and prosperity. Four details, four aspects of this I'd like us to see from verses 3 to 8. Verse 3, the first detail, there will be no war. No war. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. No war, but peace. Why? How? The nations that are alive then, they are going to be born again. And what is the attitude of born-again people toward other born-again people? We love you. There will be a perfect love of the brothers then. And they'll learn from Christ to obey him. Do you remember Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? And the Beatitudes, as it's called, Matthew chapter uh, uh, 5? Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. The pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That will be literally fulfilled when Christ is on the earth. Imagine a world with no conflicts, no weapons. And how's that going to happen? Yeah, everyone's going to be born again, but where is Satan? He's bound. He's imprisoned. Everything currently used for military purposes, destruction. You know, I have a few guns, and I know some of you have a few guns. Do you buy guns to help things get better? That's why you aim at a target, right? To keep that target whole. Some of you are really good at keeping that target untouched. Well, that was low, wasn't it? You don't buy a gun for constructive purposes. You buy a gun to defend yourself, to inflict harm. And there will be none of that whatsoever in the kingdom. All that's involved and all that's wrapped up in that will be used for constructive purposes. Plowshares and pruning hooks every year. Rough estimate, the world spends $2 trillion. $2 trillion on the military. And that's not just weapons. That's paying for people's salaries, for technology, for buildings, for office supplies, for fuel, for training. But what do we read at the end of verse 3? They shall not learn war anymore. A second aspect then, not only will there be no war, but a second aspect, there will be worldwide peace and prosperity, verse 4. Worldwide peace and prosperity. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. You won't need to lock your door. 
You won't need to have a home security system. It says here, you'll live under your fig tree. No one will make you afraid. You can live out in the open. You can take a nap out in the open. You can go to downtown Cleveland, if it exists then, or downtown Detroit, if it exists then, and you can take a nap at night and not have to worry one bit. I wouldn't dare do that now. Amos chapter 9, verse 13, talks about how there will be no poverty, only abundance. The plowman shall overtake, you remember, the reaper. Nature will be dripping with prosperity, Amos says. The mountains will drip with sweet wine. All the hills shall flow to it. A third aspect of that peace and prosperity is there will be worldwide allegiance to Christ, verse 5. Worldwide allegiance to Christ, verse 5. Micah, at his time, writes, All people walk in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Is that where the period is? What do we then read after that? Forever and ever. Micah's time, idolatry was rampant. Nearly universal. Godly Israelites walked in the name of the Lord their God, but it wouldn't be just then. It would be forever and ever. When Christ rules from Jerusalem, there will be no false religion. No idolatry. No compromises. When he rules Christ, or when Christ rules from Jerusalem, he, everyone will walk, verse 5, in the name of the Lord our God. How will they do that? You remember verse 2? Let's go to Jerusalem. He'll teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. Everyone will walk in the name of the Lord their God. Remember Philippians 2, verses 10 11. At the name of Jesus, how many knees will bow? How many tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord? Every tongue, every knee, to the glory of God. A last characteristic I want us to see here. David's kingdom will be restored. David's kingdom will be restored. Verses 6 through 8. David's kingdom will be restored. Verse 6. In that day, says the Lord. Remember what he said in verse 1? In the latter days. So that's what he's referring to. He's looking ahead to future Christ millennial mediatorial rule. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I'll gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. What? What will come to you? Here it is. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Christ will establish Israel as a strong nation, a stronghold, and Christ, the son of David. He will cause the former dominion to come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. This is talking about David's kingdom. Remember what God promised David in 2 Samuel 6, 7 verse 16? One from your, from you will come, will rule. He will sit on your throne and he will rule how long? Forever. The former kingdom will come here. Now just kind of step back, look at your sheet, and I encourage you to use this sheet this next week as um, kind of a praise and thanksgiving sheet. You look at how Christ is going to 
caused all creation to glorify him. And he is going to bring every enemy to justice. And he is going to bring a perfect kingdom to pass. And you might say, this just seems too good to be true. Especially the part about everything being like Iowa and court. That just seems too good to be true. I don't believe this could happen. You know what that should cause us to think and how maybe we should respond and evaluate? That shows how much sin and Satan have corrupted life on earth. This was created to be a garden of Eden. But sin, Satan have completely corrupted it. There will come a time, Oral Bible Church, every human being and every piece of dirt will glorify Christ. And he will be glorified first that we saw today in his judgment of evil. This is the sobering thing for us. We can tend to think of hell and the lake of fire as the place where God isn't at. But that is not so. Who's the runk? Who is the one who's in charge of that place? Who is the one who inflicts that judgment? That is the thrice holy God. And God is glorified in the judgment of sinners. How so? Every sinner, every unbeliever, breathes in air and thinks thoughts and says words and does things not caring what God says, thinks, and feels about it. Every unbeliever lives using these gifts from God for whose glory? For whose point themselves? And what is that? That's idolatry. And does God just kind of helplessly watch from heaven? What do you know from Scripture? Their judgment is coming. Their foot will slide. He will cause unbelievers, every one of them who doesn't repent and trust in Christ, to be completely, fully judged. Flip back to Revelation chapter 19 with me so that we can see this is what will happen. God will be glorified in the judgment, yes, the damnation of every unrepentant believer, unbeliever. Revelation chapter 19, verse 3. We read verse 2, how the Lord will cause uh, the, the wicked of the world to be judged. What do we read at the very beginning of verse 3? We read this. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. What does Alleluia mean? It means praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. This is sobering for us to think about. This is not a laughing matter. The conscious cries of the damned in the lake of fire, that will glorify a holy and righteous God because God's holiness will be maintained and his righteousness will be legislated. 
They broke God's law, and the wages of sin is what? Death. Yes, spiritual death. Yes, physical death. Yes, eternal death. If you're without Christ this morning, you're just kind of going through life, doing your own thing. You're here because your mom or dad made you, or you think it might help you uh, a little bit with society and all that. What do you need to do to go to the lake of fire? Nothing. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's all you need to do. Broad is the way that leads to where? Destruction. You don't need to do anything right now to glorify Christ forever in the lake of fire. This is a sobering truth. I hope no one leaves this room just kind of brushing it off. But is that the only time and place that Christ will be glorified? No. That was the second part of the message. Christ will be glorified while the clock is running, human history is going, resurrecting every believer, giving them a glorified body, and those who believers who manage to go through the tribulation with their lives intact, they'll enter that millennial rule of Christ. Yeah, they don't have a glorified body yet, but they will be born. They'll born again. They, they know the Lord. They will experience the joys of that time. And every segment of human society will consciously praise Christ. They'll love him. They'll learn from him. They'll live for him. The conscious praise of the saints forever and ever and ever will be, how oh, great is our God who died for us, who lives again for us, who rules now. And the only way you, the only way you will see and enter that kingdom is if what? You're born again. Trust in Christ. Believe in him. Turn from your sin. It leads only to the lake of fire. Welcome God's truth. Relish it. Love it. Let's close by looking at the front of our bulletins again. We read the expression of of heaven in response to what they've seen and will see during those judgments. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Let's pray.